So in the amusement park of life, there are a lot of different rides for different people, and, and not everybody has the same experience. So perhaps you're like the, the swimming, swinging pirate ship, back and forth between comfort, discomfort, pushing you in and out of comfort zones and testing your resilience. Or perhaps um, it's like a Ferris wheel full of highs and lows and really some unbelievable views. Or maybe it's like a carousel for you, spinning in circles, going through cycles of joy and sorrow, nostalgia, growth. Or perhaps it's like a haunted house filled with unexpected twists, scares, and surprises. Kind of keeps you on your toes. But for some of us, and and you might expect from uh, the title for me as well, it seems to be a bumper car experience where I navigate through the challenges and the collisions, unexpected turns, trying to find my way through the chaos. And regardless of your experience, I think we can all agree that life is not safe. It's not like a hobby where we can pick it up or put it down as we see fit. Finding a powerful guiding principle helps us and those around us to be able to smooth out the collisions and make sure that we're going in the right direction. And here's an epiphany. Life is hard regardless of who you are. And so the golden rule, as we talked about a little bit last week, we're going to talk about it again uh, this week, re, uh, remains a preeminent principle to help us navigate through the difficulties of life. And so it's in Matthew 7 and 12, and it says, Do to others whatever you would like them to do to you. This is the essence of all that is taught in the law and the prophets. And so you bump shoulders all the time with people around you, and it doesn't change the fact that no matter how mean and surly people are, a better path is to serve than to be served. And so just to be clear, I'm going to do this like one second quiz to see if you were listening from last week. Uh, uh, Men are others. Try it again. Women are others. Thank you. Husbands are. Wives are. All right, so we're going to talk about men, women, uh, husbands, and and wives. We're going to be in Ephesians 5, uh, and starting in verse uh, 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. And we're going to be focusing on on husbands uh, a little bit. Uh, Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he may present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However... Let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And so, uh, while Paul is certainly addressing some marriage pragmatics here, he's also saying 
your marriage is a reflection of how you see the church. It's really important to get these fundamentals right. And one of those is that a marriage covenant is not a he, it's not a me, it's not a she, it's not even a we, unless that we involves three. It has to involve God. And so we have to look for God for direction. And when we quit looking at God for direction in our marriages, in our lives, then we are in the wrong place. And we've frustrated the covenant in a way that it was never intended. Uh, you might remember last week we tried to illustrate this con, uh, concept. We'll see if we can illustrate it again. And we, we said, okay, if you had a line and you drew this, this, this line, and uh, this actually happened in a class of mine at a ACU, and you said, okay, everybody's got to be on the same team, but to be on the same team, you have to convince somebody on the other side of the, the line to come to your side of the line. Well, uh, we did this in the college and careers class, and they got it done just like that. I did it in my ACU class, and they didn't get it done like that. As a matter of fact, uh, they were arguing, it, and some of them never got to be on the same side of the, of the, the team. But if you're looking at the golden rule, if we're going to treat others as we should be treated, then we should really be arguing about, let me come to your side of the line. And God says, hold on, hold on, stop, you know, arguing. Let me give you a good plan. Men, you are to be the leaders. Women, you get to go to the other side of the line. And if men, if we really take the golden rule to heart, we ought to be a little bit bummed that the women get to come to our side of the line. And all of this is just to illustrate that the world is rarely as anticipated. It's never easy. So let me give you the main points and then we'll get into the lesson. Collisions are inevitable in a bumper car world. Uh, we talked a little bit about different kinds of drivers in that world. There's those that establish chaos early and often. There, there, there's that try to stay on course, but they get hit, so they counterattack, and you see those. Uh, there's those that are trying to nobly stay in their lane and uh, protect the people that are close to them. But then, and you probably don't remember this, this guy, but, but there was this guy, and I've, I've kind of given him a name, Corndog Carl. And so Corndog Carl right at bumper car time, has this uncontrollable urge to get a corn dog, and he isn't going to collide with anything. But I've got some bad news for Carl, because in a bumper car world, collisions are unavoidable. You don't get to avoid collisions, and uh, some are incomprehensible, some are exceptionals, but all of them are inevitable. It's not if you're going to be in collisions, it's when you're going to be in uh, collisions. And so, David, in the Bible, experienced this up close, and while the lessons didn't always take, they all certainly contributed to who he was. And so there's a, there's a number of stories about David and consequences, but one that's a little bit dark, and, and, and sometimes it gets uh, uh, glossed over, is the story of Nabal and David. So I think it's worth the time and effort to read through the story about these two men colliders. And so uh, turn with me to 1 Samuel 25, and we're going to be in there for a little while this evening, so it's, it's worth the effort. Uh, starting in uh, verse 2 
A certain man in Maon who had property there at Carmel was very wealthy. He had a thousand goats and 3,000 sheep, which he was uh, shearing in Carmel. His name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail, and she was an intelligent and beautiful woman. But her husband was surly and mean in his dealings. He was a Calabite. And perhaps you have a different definition for uh, uh, surly. I looked it up, and it refers to a person behavior or attitude characterized by being unfriendly, grumpy, or rude. And when someone is surly, they often display a, a, soul, a sullen or hostile demeanor showing little patience or willingness to engage in a pleasant or cooperative manner. And, and we've all had collisions with this guy. This is the guy who talks loudly on the phone in the restaurant, and he doesn't care that he's disturbing everybody around you. This is the guy that goes around you really fast in the grocery store only to get in front of you and says, I was here first. This is the guy that's driving a Cadillac and throwing McDonald's bags out the, out, out the window. And he doesn't seem to care. And he's also the kind of guy that we see him stop further down the road by a policeman because often there are consequences for bad behavior. So picking up in verse 4, while David was in the wilderness, he heard uh, that Nabal was shearing sheep. So he sent ten young men and said to them, Go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Say to him, Long life to you, good health to you and your household, and good health to all that is yours. Now I hear that it is sheep shearing time, and when your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them. And the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs went missing. Ask your own servants, and they will tell you. Therefore, be favorable toward my men, since we come at a festive time, please give your servants and your son David whatever you can, call, uh, you can find for them. And when David's men arrived, they gave Nabal this message in David's name, and then they waited. Okay, so most of us understand that this was sort of a different time. There was, uh, there was a, no local law enforcement, uh, uh, so it was safer to be in proximity of noble people of power to keep the robbers, the mercenaries, the wild animals at bay because they would provide this oasis of protection for their people, but not only their people, they would be looking out and protecting the people uh, that uh, were around them. And so it's no surprise that David's army, which was comprised of you know, several hundred men, would fall into this group. But if you're not going to partake of the land and you're not going to partake of the resources around you, then it makes sense that when you had a wealthy beneficiary and there was like this huge payday, like sheep shearing time, um, you would solicit uh, uh, to see if you could get some provisions. And this is, this is what happened. So in verse 10, Nabal answered David's servants, who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat that I have slaughtered for my shears and give it to men coming to from who knows where? Now, Nabal knew who David was. Everybody knew who David was. He had single-handedly slain the Philistines' champion, the giant Goliath. He was the king's son-in-law. He was a former commander of a thousand troops. 
and Nabal says, son of Jesse. He has some familiarity with who uh, uh, David is. And just a few chapters earlier in 1 Samuel 18 and 12, it says, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but he had departed from Saul. So he sent David away from him and gave him a command over a thousand men. And David led the troops in their campaigns. In everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns except Nabal. Okay, it doesn't say that, but uh, that's kind of the way that it seems. And so Nabal is, he's the kind of guy that says, I've got mine. I don't want to hear you whine. And I unfortunately think there may be a little bit of Nabal in all of us. I, I hate to say it. There's a little bit of Nabal in me uh, as, as well. And so when I interrupt other people, and I do this occasionally, and, and they say, let me finish, and I, and I respond with, okay, but, but one more thing. Basically, I'm saying, I've got mine. I don't want to hear you whine. Or uh, when I'm late to a meeting just because, and someone calls me on, and I respond, well, nothing really, really happens at the beginning of meetings. I'm, I'm saying to them, you know, I've got mine. I don't want to hear you whine. Or... When I'm checking my cell phone for a diversion, during a meal, conversation, sermon. And there's always this excuse, and that excuse lets me to tell you, I'm getting mine. I don't want to hear you whine. Now, I don't think that any of these things in and of themselves make you surly and mean. But I, if I don't recognize the excuses as such they kind of maybe given me permission to be a little bit more surly than I should be. All right, reading on in verse uh, uh, 12. And so David's men turned around and went back. And when they arrived, they reported every word. And David said to his men, each of you strap on your swords. So they did. And David strapped on his as well. About 400 men went up with David with 200 stayed with the supplies. Uh, this is an interesting uh, 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 scene, and the other night I was at dinner with uh, some guys, and they were talking about, you know, bullies and the, you know, sort of the philosophical dynamics of, of bullies and how to handle them, and their frustration with authority figures who said, oh, when you see a bully, you ought to just run away, and they had some really good points about maybe a counter strategy that if bullies were not punished quickly, overwhelmingly, and decisively, they would continue in their behavior, but, you know, maybe a well-positioned punch in the nose might cause them to pause in some of their life choices. Well, regardless of your opinion regarding bullies, let's be clear, that's not what's going on here. And while Nabal does not know it, he is about to collide with the consequences of his actions. Picking up in verse 14. So one of the servants told Abigail, Nabal's wife, David sent messengers from the wilderness to give our master his greetings, but he hurled insults at them. Yet these men were very good to us. They did not mistreat us, and the whole time we were out in the field near them, nothing was missing. Night and day they were a wall around us the whole time we were herding our sheep near them. Now think it over and see what you can do because disaster is hanging over our master and the whole household. He is such a wicked man and no one can talk to him. And so Abigail 
acted quickly and she puts all these supplies together. And so picking up in verse 19, and then she told her, her servants, go on ahead, I'll follow you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And she came riding her donkey into the mountain ravine, and there were David and his men descending toward her, and she met them. Verse 21. David had just said, it's been useless, all my watching over this fellow's property in the wilderness so that nothing of his was missing. He has paid me back evil for good. May God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave one male of all who belong to him. So when he meets Abigail, he has determined that trying to do good things for bad people is useless. And what needs to happen is for Nabal's badness to be met in kind once and for all. Oh, David's definitely about ending Nabal's surly lifestyle, but he's also about ending Nabal's life. And so uh, it doesn't stop there because it's not just Nabal, it's the people around him as well. And some of those people may have even been the shepherds that his noble army had been protecting just a few months earlier. So David's analysis is that Nabal does evil for good, and that's not what it should be. So his solution is to balance the equation, and he does this by having evil for evil. If you're going to revile me, I'm going to revile you, but even more so. It's the ultimate in the two wrong makes it right fallacy. Reading on in verse 23. And so when Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before David with her face to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, pardon your servant, my Lord. Let me speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. Please pay no attention, my Lord, to that wicked man, Nabal. He is just like his name. His name means a fool and folly goes with him and as for me your servant I did not see the men my Lord sent and now my Lord as surely as the Lord your God lives and as you live since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands may your enemies and all who are intent on harming my Lord be like Nabal and let this gift, which your servant has brought to you, my Lord, be given to the men who follow you. Please forgive your servant's presumption. The Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord because you fight the Lord's battles. And no wrongdoing will be found in you as long as you live. So this is really confusing to David. You think about it, he's really, really angry. He's on the war path. And he's like, okay, I am ready to meet whatever comes my way. And what comes his way? Gifts. Reading in verse 29. And even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. And when the Lord has fulfilled for my Lord every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him ruler over Israel, my Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or having avenged himself and when the lord your god has brought my lord success remember your servant and so david is totally confused 
he's confronted with gifts. He's confronted with a beautiful woman. And it totally catches him off guard. And so he be she begins to treat David as if he's the man God hopes him to be and who Abigail hopes he will become. And, and ladies, you kind of need to take note of this because when you do this to men, it works. Even if we know that you're doing it to us. It's like, I bet you can take that trash out with one arm. I know what you're doing, but yeah, I think I can. <laughs> Want to watch? <laughs> so, so Abigail, she's so smart. And th this isn't manipulative. It's just kind of a, a dynamic. And she saves the day. And she speak, begins to speak to David's potential. She begins to look past what he's about to do and speaks to the future of what he ought to do. Continuing in verse 32, David said to Abigail, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you to, uh, today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment, for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. Otherwise, as surely as the Lord, uh, the God of Israel lives, who has kept me from harming you. If you had not come quickly to meet me, not one male belonging to Nabal would have been left alive by daybreak. Then David accepted from her hand what she had brought him and said, Go home in peace. I have heard your words and granted your request. Now, don't miss this because David is very clear. And I think it's a prime example of how to respond to consequential constructive criticism. And, and, and it kind of has a parallel with how we respond to our conscience as well. First, let's separate uh, fantasy from reality. I ask my classes all the time, do you like constructive criticism? And half of them say, oh, yes. I've got news for you. From my personal experience, and the, the evidence seems to suggest that's not the case. I've never had a student say to me, praise be to the Lord who has sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed in your good judgment for keeping me from committing writing errors in my future. It's never happened. Similarly, when I'm suffering from a guilty conscience, times are few when I have thanked God for the guilt that he's provided and for the opportunity to not do what I know I shouldn't. But that is exactly what David does, not once, but twice. Reading on in verse 36. And when Abigail went to Nabal, he was in the house holding a banquet like that of a king, and he was in high spirits and very drunk, and she told him nothing at all until daybreak. And then in the morning when Nabal was sober, his wife told him all these things, and his heart failed him, and he became like stone. About ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. And when the Lord heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Praise be to the Lord, who has upheld my cause against Nabal for treating me with contempt. He has kept his servant from doing wrong, and he has brought Nabal's wrongdoing down on his head. David says, thank you, God, for responding to the evil of Nabal. And, don't miss this, keeping me from the wrongdoing as well. And, and, and you can read the rest of the story, but the short version is that David ends up with wise and beautiful Abigail as his wife. 
Um, and indeed, it's an asset when we have wise people counseling us. And we should be thanking them and also God for the privilege of their counsel. And we should be listening to that. But even if we don't have those people as Christians, we need to be those people as Christians. And we need to be having interactions with the world. And we're called to be those people even if the evil of the world is crashing into us. Okay, we're going to be looking at, at, at 1 Peter 3 and, and, and 7, and we're going to kind of pull this to, uh, to a close. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on contrary, bless. For this, is you, this, for this you were called and that you may obtain a blessing. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. God is asking us to have a collision with Christ. And that collision is more than turning away from evil and doing good. It's about doing good in spite of of the evil that's being done to us. Continuing in verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be the God's will than doing evil. Peter says, I want you to be the person that God wants you to be. You were called for this. God wants this for you. He wants it for you so that your prayers won't be hindered. He wants it for you so that you can obtain this blessing. He wants it for you because he wants you to honor Christ in your heart. He wants this for you because it shows a bumper car world what's the right way to go and that they're going about it all wrong. And hopefully they'll be put to shame. He wants it for you because it's better to do good than to do evil. God wants you with him on his team. And he wants men and he wants women and he wants everyone making a difference in a world fraught with collision and misdirection. But Christianity is not a hobby. It is a dangerous pursuit. But letting things go on the way that they are going in our world is even more dangerous because it's not so much of who you want to be, but rather whose you are. If you're about 
yourself, that's selfishness. If you're about who others want you to be, well, that's just foolishness. But if you're about God, that's holiness. Settle this, and the rest of your life falls into place. So, what are the big takeaways for this evening? Uh, and we've got a couple. Godly marriage is a three-way street. If you really believe in the golden rule, then it needs to be the rule and not the exception. To have a godly marriage is about serving each other, not because we're told to, but because it's a better way of life, sanctified by God himself. Second, Christianity is not a, he- a hobby. And this is true, even if we don't feel the significance of our spiritual journey, and even if we don't understand the generational impacts that we're going to have, even in the midst of spiritual highs and lows and the flats in between, because our destiny and the destiny of those around us hangs in the balance. And third, don't repay evil for evil. This is about deciding to be on God's team or the world's team. Doing evil or just trying to give others what they deserve when they collide into you is not what God wants for us. And he's begging you to be with him in a bumper car world. Perhaps there's something keeping you from being on God's team. You just can't get over the line. Maybe it's arrogance. Maybe it's a lifestyle. Perhaps it's a situation that you're in. I've heard it said uh, many times, uh, you need to come to Jesus. Uh, you need to go that short distance from your team to God's team. And that may be true, but sometimes I think it's an inaccurate description. Because truth be told, God says, I care about you so much. You don't have to go that distance from your team to my team I will go that distance from my team to your team. I want this so much that I gave my son for you. And that there's nothing that you have done that can keep you away from me. Truth be told, None of us have overcome our sins to be on God's team. Jesus overcame our sins and came to us. And all he asks is don't run away from me. If you need God to put you on in baptism, Jesus says, don't run away from me. I'm here. If you haven't overcome your sins, Jesus says, I've overcome them. I'm here. If there's any way that we can help you tonight, Jesus says, I'm here. Won't you come as we sing the song that's been selected?